You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast brought to you by Tacticam. This podcast aims to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters, brushing up on essential skills, or maybe just adding a few new tactics to the toolkit. We cover a variety of topics that will help you be more confident and successful in the field while hunting deer. This week, I'm talking with Jake Bush, the Ohio-based big buck killer. Many of you may be aware of Jake. He's made a name for himself over the last couple of years using some of the beast tactics that he's picked up from guys like Dan Infault and uh, having a lot of success in the hill country of Ohio. And he's not doing that at just any time of the year. Jake loves to get on deer in that first week, first day even, of the archery season. If you've hunted for very long, especially if you've archery hunted with seasons beginning a bit earlier than rifle seasons, then you know the early season can present lots and lots of challenges, especially for guys on public land. When you're dealing with settings that don't have ag fields, don't have food plots, don't really have the ability to trim out shooting lanes, you're just at a significant disadvantage. But Jake has consistently gotten it done, and today we're gonna talk about how to locate a buck and find success on opening day. Man, I think this is probably one of the most informative podcast episodes that I've done so far. I learned so much. I've listened to this thing myself like three times already. And every time I've done it, I've been jotting down notes. I actually had to message Jake earlier today and just say, man, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Before we jump into the show, however, I do want to take a quick moment to thank our partners. First of all, Tacticam, title sponsor of this show. Uh, these guys are absolutely killing it when it comes to their cameras and camera accessories. I hope that you've got your trail cameras out. I know I've been loving my Reveal X Gen 2 cameras. They're providing crystal clear pictures. I've not had a single issue out of these cameras. And one new thing that I just added to the toolkit here is uh, their lithium batteries. So I went online the other day to try to buy some AA lithium batteries and realizing, man, I need to buy a lot of batteries here heading into the season. Well, it turns out AA lithium batteries right now on Amazon are somewhere around the $2.60 mark. So I jumped on Tacticam's website, found their new lithium battery packs that are compatible with the Reveal cell cameras. And these battery packs are right at 50 bucks each. Now, what that means is that if I use that thing twice, then these battery packs have already paid for themselves. I don't have to worry about hauling a bunch of batteries into the woods with me. I can just take these battery packs, swap them out, 
These things are rechargeable. And the best I can tell right now, I, I'm getting the same battery life out of these battery packs as I would from having a bunch of double A's in there. So go over, check those out. You can head over to Tacticam.com to see their full line of products, or you can head over to RevealCellCam.com to learn more about their Reveal line of cellular trail cameras. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Next up, Huntworth. These guys are producing some high-quality hunting clothes at a price point that really I don't think anybody else can beat for the quality of the clothing that you get. Here at the end of the summer, checking trail cameras, doing some last-minute scouting, shooting out in the backyard. I've really, really enjoyed wearing their lightweight stuff. Uh, the Durham lightweight pants are fantastic. Those things are going to see me through the end of the summer and into the early archery season. Right now, they're running a preseason sale. You get 30% off of your purchase Use the code PRE30, that's P-R-E, all caps, 30. Uh, the sale ends August 21st, so you'll probably be listening to this somewhere around August 11th, 12th, 13th. It means you got about a week to get on there and grab anything that you need. Head over to their website now, huntworthgear.com. Finally, Deer Lab. I've said this before, but they are the number one trail camera management software for hunters and land managers. Uh, a lot of trail camera companies now are coming out with different apps and things where they can keep track of your photos for you. Big problem with those though, is they want you to use their camera to be able to do that. And I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody that only has one brand of trail camera. Deer Lab though, you can use that with any trail camera that uses an SD card. Go over to their website, DeerLab.com, sign up for their free trial. You get 30 days for free. There's no credit card required for the trial, so you really have nothing to lose. Then when you're ready to buy, you can use the code HUNTDEER, all caps, for 20% off of any plan. Now let's jump into the show with Jake Bush. Today on the podcast, I've got Ohio-based big buck killer Jake Bush on the line. Welcome to the show, Jake. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you taking the time to come on and share some of your knowledge with us. You kind of exploded onto the scene a couple of years ago when you uh, started knocking down some pretty, uh, pretty huge bucks. And I listened to, I guess, probably one of the first podcasts you did with Clint Campbell uh, how many podcasts have you done at this point? Have you, have you counted? Uh, he was the first and I haven't counted them. I'd say there's, I'd say probably between 50 and 75 of them. If I had to guess. Jeez. Okay. All right. So I gotta say this episode is a long time coming and you don't know that it's a long time coming. So a while back I was planning the content for this show and I was writing out different names, guys that I wanted to get. I started reaching out to different guys, filled up the schedule, got to recording and all that good stuff. I went back to the list recently and there's a lot of guys that didn't get back to me. You know, so I'm marking like, Hey, they didn't get back to me. Maybe try them again later kind of thing. And I was like, Oh, let me, let me check with Jake again. And I looked and I'd never sent you a message in the first place. Like I'd never even, I'd never even originally reached out. So I was like, Oh, well, I guess I need to, uh, I need to get back with him. So the massive oversight on my part uh, to get you on this show, but let's start with kind of a rundown of, uh, of who you are and, what the last couple of years chasing big bucks on public land has produced for you? Yeah. So my name is Jake Bush. Um, I have been hunting for as long as I can remember or chasing deer around as long as I can remember. Uh, started for me when I was about 10 years old with my grandpa and my dad, I'd just go out and sit in a tree stand with them. And, uh, I loved, you know, chasing deer with them. I loved filming deer. I loved shooting my bow. I've shot a bow ever since I was two or three years old. Um, it's been something that's always kind of been a passion of mine. And as you can imagine, you get around other like-minded people and those passions just continue to grow and evolve and unfold into, uh, you know, whatever route you're going to take with, with your life. 
the fashions in. Um, three years ago, I decided, you know what, I'm going to chase it. So I sold my house in New York, quit my job. I moved to central Ohio kind of on a whim and uh, just started chasing big deer down here all the time. That's, that's pretty much what I was doing. But uh, yeah, over the last few years, I, I've got on some good ones down here. I've been fortunate enough to find you know, like a Boone and Crockett class deer every year to chase so far. Um, and it's been a lot of fun, you know, chasing those big deer really gets your heart pumped and gets you fired up. And I've enjoyed every minute of it so far. Yeah, for sure. And, and for folks who maybe aren't familiar with you, um, guys like the DeQuistos, uh, Dan Infault, they've had a, a huge influence on your style and, and the way that you hunt. I want to ask you, how do you think your style has evolved? Like everybody kind of goes and looks at, I guess you call them beast tactics or whatever, and kind of, uh, adapts them for their own specific style and kind of what works for you. How have you taken those and kind of made it work for you? So it was kind of funny because when I first found out about Dan and I found out about like the podcast thing or some of these DVDs that are out there, and I started correlating his tactics and information with other tactics and information as well. And I went out and just started putting boots on the ground. I've always been the kind of person that I really want to be able to go look at something and understand it for myself. I'm a very hands-on learner. So I went out and I mean, day one beds were right where they were supposed to be. And it made perfect sense to me and I could find the trails and the transitions and everything else. And, uh, ever since then, it's been really a matter of taking like tidbits of information from other people that are very successful, you know, like uh, Andy May, Andy May is a, a guy that I really follow and look up to and just kind of twisting that into my own, uh, you know, tactic based over time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's evolved into a very aggressive style of hunting. It's, uh, you know, I'm finding specific beds. Like I find bedding areas, but I have to find every bed in that bedding area. It's something in my head. I think I have a bad case of OCD. Um, but I like getting down in the beds. I like seeing how far they can see what they can hear, what they, what their closest food source is going to be. I like going into it like a chess match, but you almost have the upper hand because you're cheating because you already know all the moves they're going to make because you scouted that. You know what I mean? It's like watching film on somebody you're going to play a chess match against. That's how I feel when I go out there. Like I'm, I'm putting all these moves in front of the deer and I'm trying to understand what he's going to do. And I'm just trying to anticipate that and make a kill. Um, so that's, that's what it is. I mean, most of my setups, especially early season, which is what I really like to focus on are sub a hundred yards to the bedding. And a lot of them are within 80 yards, even 50 yards. I've, I mean, I've been set up almost right over top of them before. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my game. Spend 365 days a year scouting and glassing and preparing for that one hunt. I want to go out the first time I go out and, and really knock down my target buck. And that sounds great and easy, but there's a lot that goes into that. And I fail a lot, but it's, it's a blast, man. Yeah. That that's kind of the, the target thing that I want to talk to you about specifically is, you know, getting a, a kill either in on opening day or in those first two weeks, because me personally, man, I have gone into opening day a lot of times with big hopes, big dreams and big expectations of what's going to happen. And I have not killed an opening day buck yet. Like it just, it hasn't worked out uh, for me. So, but a lot of what you do, uh, like you said, is based off of your scouting. And I'm assuming that's a lot of like winter and spring scouting. Is that right? Yeah, there's a lot of winter and spring scouting. Uh, I will summer scout quite a bit if I need to. If I don't feel like I have the intel that I need, I'll gladly go out there and spend a bunch of time in the summertime. Um, but generally, once I'm in an area for a couple seasons, 
that summertime is meant for putting the cameras out in June, letting them soak and just glassing fields, trying to turn up another big deer in an area that I may have already scouted, but I'm not targeting this year. Um, you know, you can imagine doing this all year long. I have hundreds of locations that are probably pretty good, but I fine tune those down into my top five spots that I really think is going to produce a buck of the caliber I want to chase. And it's going to allow me to efficiently attack that deer. Um, so, you know, I have deer that are, are really big that are set up on top of a ridge where it's wide open for three or 400 yards. And I can't really go hunt that deer and, because he won't move that far in daylight, but he can see me all the time. So I don't target that deer. I target deer that are killable. So I have to have, you know, top five locations where I have a deer of the class I want to chase that's killable. Um, and that's, that's what I'm fine tuning. Yeah. Are you, are you seeing consistencies when it comes to, let's say you move in on a target deer and it's those first two weeks, right? And we've seen the studies coming out of like MSU deer lab and different things where that shows how deer begin to respond to hunting pressure. So let's say you go in, you swing for the fences, you either bump the deer or you're, you're relatively certain he knew you were there. Maybe it's not a hard bump, but like a soft bump or something like that. Are you seeing anything consistent across the board where it's like, I get two chances or is it, or is it one and done? Or is it like, I'll give him a few days and, and he'll be back in there. How, how do you, how do you play that? So I, I think that the kill is almost more consistent than the move they're going to make. If you don't kill them and you mess up. Uh, what I mean by that is I feel like if I go in that, if I spend all year looking for that one spot, I have really high odds of going in and actually having, you know, an opportunity to put an arrow through them. But if I do bump him, I mean, I've, I've, I've killed him the next day. I've not seen him again for a month. It's, it's kind of been all over the place. You know, there's a lot of factors that go into that. How, how big is the chunk of woods you're hunting? How much pressure is there everywhere else? How, uh, used to some sort of human intrusion are they? If it's a deer that doesn't see humans and you blow him out of his bed, he might take off over five ridges. But if he's used to getting bumped around by hikers and coyotes on a daily basis, it might not have the same impact. So I would say from a, from a bumping and intrusive standpoint there, I haven't found any real consistencies there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I was talking with someone else recently and uh, I've realized that there are areas where if I get way back in there and man, I, I bump a good deer, I, it, it's over. You know, I, like I, I may not, I may not see that deer again. I may not be able to pick him up on cameras again. I don't know what he does, but he evades me pretty well. But I've also hunted areas uh, like the, one of the, my favorite spots in southern Wisconsin where the deer are used to getting bumped a lot by hikers and dog walkers and pheasant hunters and all kinds of stuff, and those deer come right back. Like, I can get away with a lot more in those scenarios. It's like they, I don't know, it's like they adjust to that pressure, and they just, I don't know, they just, uh, they log me in a, uh, well, it, he didn't get me that time, so I guess, I guess I'm okay uh, heading back in. Um, so you're a guy that, that puts a ton of time in scouting. You cover a lot of miles and you're really, really selective about the deer that you harvest on public ground. I think it's one thing for a guy who has, you know, access to uh, exclusive access to a property to go in and say, Hey, I'm going to be really targeted with which deer I'm going to shoot. Uh, you're doing that on public with a lot of other guys in there, you know, around you maybe they're not going in as far as you or going into the spots that you are, but they're, they're in and around you. What made you decide, you know what, I'm going to start targeting really high caliber deer in really high pressured areas. Like how did that become a priority for you? 
so it really came down to uh, what, you know, when I was in New York, I was, I was consistently killing the biggest deer in my area pretty quickly every year. And it's just in New York there, you know, a, a five-year-old could be 110 inches or 120 inches. Like they're just yeah. not those giant deer that you see in magazines. So coming down here to Ohio, I started running cameras in a lot of locations. And that was honestly, I mean, my goal, my first year was to come down here and shoot like 140 inch deer because that's a really good Ohio deer. Like, especially for an out of stater or somebody on limited time, like a 140 is a, is a beautiful deer. Yeah. Any, and almost anybody's going to be happy with that deer. Exactly. So I started running cameras, but what I was noticing is that I was finding a lot bigger deer than that. And it wasn't like I was doing anything that was outside of the box, really. I mean, I was just going in, in my head and finding these leeward ridges that had clear cuts or had other good food sources nearby. And I would find scrapes and I would put cameras on scrapes and they were just loaded up. I mean, it was, I was having deer bigger than anything I've ever shot hit cameras in June on scrapes and it was blowing my mind. And I was, I was just like, well, I guess I've always been the kind of person where I'll like set a goal and I want to achieve that goal. So if I have 30 deer on camera, but two of them are like 170 inches, like it's just in my nature to want to go after the biggest one. So I got, I guess that's how it got started. Honestly, it wasn't like a, I didn't come down here with that intention. It was really just a matter of, I want to give myself the best, the best challenge I can every year. And I, I think that the hardest challenge I'm going to find is to kill the biggest deer I can find. That's going to be the most difficult thing in most, you know, most circumstances. Um, so that's just, that's just how I fell into that trap, honestly, into that, into that way. Yeah, man. I, I think that's, that's something that seems really daunting, um, for a lot of guys, me, me included. Like I've, you know, I've located a couple of big deer during the summer and, um, I have almost, I, I've been really reluctant to sort of take that step and say, you know, this is the deer I'm after. You know, he's, he's, you know, 20 inches, 25 inches bigger than anything else in the area. So this is the one that I'm going after. I tend to fall back on, well, this one's a lot easier or it, se- it seems a lot easier. You know, it seems like it's going to be easier to get in on this one. So I think I'll go this route or, well, that one's not as consistent. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll look for this other one. That's a little bit more consistent. Um, I want to ask you about early season patterns because it seems like you're really banking on finding deer that are on these early season patterns. Is that right? Yeah, that's my primary focus. Uh, you know, I'm spending all this, all this time scouting, shed hunting, uh, running cameras, all really, all that whole 365 day process is really meant for day one through day, let's say five before they really shift. And that shift is brought on by a lot of different things. It's brought on by uh, hormones. It's brought on by food sources changing. It's brought on by pressure. There's a bunch of different variables. But the one thing that I can, I can guarantee is that if I'm the first person in there, the first intrusion that they see of the year, when they're still on a pattern, I'm going to have a pretty good opportunity at that deer. So that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to just find the deer that's presenting a weakness that I can capitalize on with specific variables, you know, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but like with a specific wind, with a specific food source dropping in that three day window, um, you know, I'm taking annual Intel over the years and, and finding these little micro patterns too, to say, okay, you know, three day window here, three day window here, three day window here. Now I have a good buck in here. Well, I have a white Oak flat that I know is going to drop and it will be dropping or it should be just on dropping that opening day of season. I get the right wind and nobody else has been in there, that buck is going to be in there. And, uh, 
really important if you're doing like for me anyway, it's this style of hunting. It's very important to be the first intrusion that that deer sees because you're, you have the best opportunity at him. He's not going to have a, he's not going to shift patterns generally if you're the first person in there. There's a lot of factors in that too. You know, we could get into specific food sources and stuff, but drawn ag, it's a little bit different. In the big hill country, it normally seems like come mid-September, if you have white oaks dropping, you're going to have big deer in the area. And it's just a matter of already pre-scouting it and knowing where they're at and then just taking a shot at that specific, you know, kill zone. Yeah. So I want to drill in on that, um, on that pattern a little bit. So, and I'll give myself as an, as an example and, and you can coach me here. So, um, I'll use last fall for, for an example, uh, in August, I, I got a pattern on a buck and he was moving, you know, our, our season in Wisconsin didn't open until mid September. Um, had him on a, a pattern for about two weeks where he was hitting some early falling white oaks up there. The, um, gosh, I can't remember what, it, what kind it was at Burr Oaks. They were dropping pretty early that year. He was on there hammering them hard. Then I lost him for like a week. Then some white oaks down the ridge start dropping. So put the cameras in there. Boom. He's right back in there. Then I lose him again. Later, later on in, uh, I think it's early October, found him again on some natural brows. But I was finding kind of these, you know, one and a half week to five day patterns almost. Are you seeing that a lot too? Are you keying in on what you believe to be like longer term patterns? Because it seems really difficult to hone in on a deer that's going to be on a pattern for three days. Yes, and you, you nailed it. So that's exactly it. That's what creates a high percentage opportunity. It's saying, hey, there's a deer in this area that I know of that I want to target. I have four potential food sources. If you can narrow down the window that that food source becomes hot, you are going to be very close to killing that deer. And in my opinion, more times than not, it's worth taking a shot at it. You might go from a 5% odd to a 20% odd if you're on that white oak flat in that three-day window. 20% odds on a giant buck, pretty good, pretty good odds in my book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But that's exactly what I'm doing. When I go into these areas and I'm scouting the beds, I'm scouting specific beds based on a food source. And I'll give you a really good example of that. So I scouted a brand new area this year. It's a huge chunk of land. And there's hub system um, where all the ridges dump down to the center where there's a big community scrape. And that's something I really focused on. So I got down to the bottom, I found the scrape, and I found trails leading up every ridge. And these ridges are broadcasted, let's say, a mile north to south, and they jut out towards the east. So it sets up really good for there are typical western wind down here. So their primary bedding location. So each point of each ridge had beds on it, and it had old rut sign, and it had a lot of rubs, and it had some old scrapes. So what I was doing, I started on the ridge on the south. And I go up on that ridge, and I'm scouting it, and all the beds are hammered, right? They have tons of hair all over the place. They look like they were been used for the entire year, 365 days. Well, okay, I'm looking around. I'm like, all right, well, there was a really good white oak flat here. There's red oaks here, but the reds didn't drop at all this year. Uh, up on top of this ridge, there was chestnut oaks, and that was the only late season food source they had besides, besides greenbrier in this area. So, okay, it makes sense they were on these beds a little bit more, right? I had a couple consistent food sources. So I go a couple ridges over and as I'm scouting, the ridges actually look better for a mature buck. Like they're a little thicker, they're a little brushier, but I was finding less and less beds the further I got away from that, that original oak flat and those original oaks. And at first I couldn't figure it out. I was like, what's happening here? What's going on? 
And then it clicked in my head. I was like, you're right. These, this last ridge sets up really good for bedding, but none of these beds have hair in them at all. They haven't been laid in very often this whole year. Reason being, even though it's an awesome bedding area and it has perfect bedding location, there was no food source within 500 yards. So bedding is only important when it relates to food. And to me, food is only important when it relates to bedding. The two of those go hand in hand. If you have one without the other, and to me, I'm not going to hunt that spot because I'm trying to be very precise. I'm trying to say he's on this oak flat at night on a camera. He's hitting this scrape. He beds here. I'm going to cut him off. And that's, that's, I think, think that's what's increasing my odds more than anything else where a lot of people are just hunting like a bedding area, right? Without knowing if it's hot or not or knowing where the hot food source is or they're hunting the hot food source without knowing where the bedding area is far out of the game and that buck's just not getting there in daylight and they think he's nocturnal when you can find both and then you can start correlating travel routes between both based on transition lines based on uh, how a mature buck's gonna just want to navigate that area in general that's when you're really going to start dialing in these early pattern season or these early season uh, patterns but and then do it across all those ridges so i could say you know if that ridge would have set up different and there was a clear cut i could say okay well late season that last ridge is going to be really, really good because there's a clear cut on, you know, off the edge of it. So I'm just using that. And then I'm keeping logs of that every year in my back pocket. That way, when I get another good buck in there, I already have it figured out for the most part. I can take a very high percentage sit at that deer. And now all of a sudden I have five bucks to target. I have, you know, five different wins for each buck. And I know their food sources throughout the first three weeks of October, I can take an educated sit and a very high percentage sit at every one of those deer. And chances are, I'm going to be really, really close to killing one. Yeah. I, I think that might be, uh, as, as I've, you know, perused the forums and talked to different guys, I think that might be one area where guys kind of go wrong when it comes to bed hunting. Um, besides just not being careful with their access, you know, that kind of thing. There are a lot of like mistakes you can make on the way in. Right. But I, I think failing to correlate the beds that they find with when the deer were there and, you know, finding that right window as far as, okay, these oaks are going to be dropping and those acorns are going to be gone in five or six days or whatever. And, and they're not keying in on them at, at the correct time. So a lot of that just comes down to knowing your area, knowing the food sources that are available and then sort of working your way backwards, I guess, to the, to the beds or, or I, I guess the, how am I trying to say this? So, you've got sort of this log in your mind of all the beds in the area, right? So a pattern for you is not necessarily like this buck leaves this bed every single day for the entire month of September and ends up right here. It's taking all of the pieces into account. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's never a specific bed. And that's one of the, I mean, I'm not going to say never because I have had like a bedding area that was like three beds within 10 feet that I consider one bed where he would bounce based on wind directions and he had multiple different food sources there that was giving him the ability to stay there longer. But that's pretty rare. Normally it's you're finding the specific bed for that food source, like you said, and you're, you're right. Like if I talk to a lot of guys that are trying to learn this style of hunting, that's kind of the common theme that I see is that they're, they're really keyed in on the bed a lot of times and they'll be really keyed in on the food. And it's like, okay, well now you have to mesh the two of those. You have to, make those you have to put both of those in your mind and that's going to give you that pattern that you need and and i've been guilty of it i spent 
this is a learning process, right? I mean, I've been doing this for a long time now and I, I've been bow hunting for, this will be my 16th or 17th year. And I've always been kind of in this mindset and it took me a long time to figure some of those things out and put it together. Um, but yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And, that, and that's what takes it. That's what takes this style of hunting away from just being a math equation, right? Like if you, if you just flatten it out, it's like, there's a bed that equals a buck coming in to my lap at closing time, right? You know, right when, when I'm supposed to, to make the shot. But if once you introduce these other variables and sort of playing with the things that happen in between, that's where it kind of is less of a math equation and more of an art, right? Like that's where the, the, the rubber really starts to meet the road. I'm curious, how are you keeping an eye on these bucks without putting too much pressure on them and bumping them out of there? So it, it's kind of funny because I do run cameras in these areas, right? Like I'll have a camera down on the hub scrape and sometimes I'll run cameras on like a, just a terrain feature in between the bedding and that specific food source just to see if it heats up or like maybe for next year I can check that camera and I can say, okay, those three days were when he was using this route to go to that white Oak flat. But a lot of times if I know there's a good deer in the area, I think this, yeah, if I know there's a good deer in the area, a lot of times I really don't need a whole lot of Intel besides he's there because I already have those factors logged. I already have notebooks and uh, scouting apps with pins all over the place based on that information and that Intel. So, you know, if I find, if I cut a big track, like I cut a big track about a month ago and I know what the food source is right now and I know where the beds are and I already found that deer. So like I'm, to me, I have the intel I need when I know that he's there, whether that's glassing him up, cutting a big track, whatever it may be, that I know where those food sources are at and I know how he's going to bounce throughout that area throughout the summer and into the fall. And normally I can take an educated guess that, Hey, this white Oak flag gets hot. That buck was in there a month ago. I know he could transition over to this area. I'm going to anticipate him moving and already be sitting there waiting on him. Yeah. And that all comes back to, Hey man, I've, I've done the homework up front, right? Like, you know, like you said earlier, you're playing chess and you know, all the moves, you know, all the, all the possible moves, all the potential moves that this deer is going to make. I'm, I'm curious uh, if somebody plucked Jake Bush out of his current setting and dropped him somewhere right now we're recording this on August 1st. So they drop you in. You don't have any of that Intel, right? Like nothing that you picked up on leading into today. Where are you going to start and how is your strategy going to look different? Like how are you going to get in there and find a buck for opening day? So I'm really going to try to put eyes on one at that point, you know, whether that's through a camera, through running some cameras or glassing a lot, depending on the terrain that you drop me in. Um, I've even went as far as just walking the ridges in Ohio when I moved down here three years ago in the summertime and bumping deer off and glassing them. I would glass them as they ran through the bottom. I was like, Hey, there's a 140. Like, awesome. That's a, <laughs> that's a giant buck. So that was, you know, the deer that I killed that year, that 186, I bumped out of his bed where I killed him just on a scouting mission. So wow. it was, yeah. So I'm, I'm doing, and a lot of people will ask me, you know, how do you feel about intrusion or how do you feel about bumping deer in the summertime or leading up to season? To me, if I don't have the Intel that I need, I need to go get it. And nothing's more valuable than that. It is well worth bumping that deer and risking him blowing out of the country 
to have the intel I need to kill him. Like that's what's most important to me. I will not hunt a spot unless I'm in my own head, 100% confident I'm going to here. And I, you know how it is. 98% of the time I'm wrong, but in my head, I always have that plan figured out. And I even like, I talk myself up and I, I like put on this fake face where I'm like, Oh, he's in that bed and he's sitting here looking at this tree and I'm going to sneak in and I'm going to go kill him on that flat tonight. And the majority of the time it gets dark and I'm like, man, I can't believe he didn't show up, but <laughs> you know, every once in a while it pans out and works. So it works out pretty good. Yeah. And man, you've, you've got to have that confidence too. Like <clears throat> I wish I could tell you how many times at this point that I lacked that confidence and it caused me to do something stupid, whether on deer or on, it's happened a lot this past season on turkeys where I lacked the confidence. And so I, I got busted, you know, and it's like, if I had, if I had just had the confidence in what my eyes had told me, and what my cameras had told me and what woodsmanship tells me, then that would have been a dead animal. You know, nine times out of 10, that would have been a dead animal if I could make a good shot. But because I lack that confidence, now all of a sudden I'm, I'm sloppy on my way in, I'm moving too fast, that kind of thing. So tell me a bit about uh, what you're hanging these cameras on. You mentioned it just a second ago, and I've heard you talk about it on other, other podcasts where specifically are you hanging your cameras to get that kind of intel? Are you just hanging them on edges and trails or are you more specific? So this is going to pertain to Southern Ohio hill country, but I think that that can cascade out into certain areas of Wisconsin, uh, Northeastern Iowa. It can cascade over to New York, Pennsylvania, Kentucky, you know, anywhere where there's good hill country, maybe mixed with a little bit of ag or some clear cuts or things like that. Um, what I'm really looking for is community hubs down in these bottoms. So like I was talking about earlier, where you have a ridge system, let's say that runs north to south, and you have a bunch of points that jut out to the east. I really like the ones that set up like that because with a west wind, I can access from the east and I'm bulletproof. And what I like is when they're bedding up above that on those ridge points or in the bowls of the ridges, and then at night they dump down and they all check that scrape. If you get in the right areas, you can have four or five mature bucks in that same system and that scrape becomes very competitive and it's competitive all year long. It's competitive January through December. I'll have deer hitting these scrapes. So what I typically like to do is pick those spots out on a map, go in, verify that that scrape is there. If I can find a beech tree, it's almost guaranteed the scrapes under a beech tree in that hub. Um, and I like to run a camera right on that hub scrape. And that is the best form of Intel that I get in the big woods bar none. It's not even close. I mean, I'll have cameras that will get pictures of mature bucks every day. I have cameras that I'll go check and I'll have 20 different bucks that hit that camera in the summer in big woods. And so it's the best Intel that I'm, that I can find. It's the best inventory that I've been able to find so far. And then you start coupling that with other things. And obviously that can help out a lot. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned thermal hubs. I know that plays into your strategy pretty, pretty significantly. Right. I hear most of the time though, guys talking about thermal hubs as a place to hunt during the rut, uh, you know, doe or bucks checking for, for doe bedding and that kind of thing. So you're banking on a lot of bucks bedding in these thermal hubs. What have you noticed about how they like to bed in and around these hubs? Let's say early season specifically. So typically they're bedded up above the hubs, but it's that same system, right? It's, it's all one system. Like if the thermals are rising, right, they can smell that hub. Um, what I find consistently in there is that these ridge points are very wind-based. So you can, 
you can really fine tune that betting. Like if you only have one mature buck in there and he has a point, you can almost look at the map for the day and correlate the wind direction and find what ridge sets up straight with that wind direction. And that's the one he's going to be on. And I found that quite a bit down here. I've had a lot of success, you know, watching him come off the ridge on camera. I've had a lot of success targeting that. Um, and, and I go a little bit beyond that too, you know, they have to be going down in this circumstance, right? Like if they're bedded on the point of the ridge and they're going up over to like a ag field or a oak flat on the other side, it changes completely. This really works well when they're going down to the bottom and either crossing up the other ridge or they're walking the drainage straight out to like an ag field or straight out to their clear cut or some other food source. Those are my favorite ones. But uh, yeah, consistently it would be the, the wind-based bedding would be just the, the travel throughout the year. I mean, I know a lot of guys hunt those during the rut, but I'm seeing the same pattern that they're hunting in the rut the entire year. So it's, it's just a, it's, a, it's somewhere they feel comfortable traveling. You know, as the afternoon goes on and the thermals start dropping into that hub, if you're not really onto your game with like milkweed, checking the wind and checking your thermals, you'll get busted very easily. And there's some hubs that I can't hunt the bottom of the hub. I have to actually hunt like halfway up the ridge in between his bed and the hub. You're really fine-tuned when I do that because if he's on the wrong ridge and I'm hunting the wrong ridge, he's going to come down behind me and smell me. So there's a bunch of play into that. Just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the How to Hunt Deer podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best point-of-view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. Their gear is made by outdoorsmen for outdoorsmen. Archery openers are just around the corner and Tacticam just released several new products to help you share your hunt and take your scouting to the next level. Topping the list is their 6.0 point of view camera, providing 4K footage in a user-friendly waterproof package. They've also just released the new Solo Extreme, giving you HD footage, three to eight X zoom, and one touch operation that you've come to expect from your Tacticam point of view camera. Tacticam's lineup of cameras is supported by the best mounts and adapters on the market. This fall, I'll be using their stabilizer mount as well as their bendy clamp mount to make sure my cameras don't miss any of the action. And last but not least, they just launched the Reveal X Pro. With no visible flash, built-in LCD screen, and built-in GPS tracking, the Reveal X Pro will help you take your scouting to the next level. You can learn more about these and Tacticam's entire line of products at tacticam.com or revealcellcam.com. This episode is also brought to you by Deer Lab, the number one trail camera app for hunters and land managers. Deer Lab gives you a simple way to store, organize, and analyze all of your trail camera data. Deer Lab has tons of great features like the ability to filter photos based on what's in them, like deer or turkeys or people. It syncs your photos with local weather to help you pattern your target, and you can even mass edit your timestamps, which is a great feature if you're like me and you forget to correct the time on your camera. Head over to DeerLab.com to check them out. You can get a free 30-day trial, and then when you're ready to buy, use the code HUNTDEER all caps for 20% off of any plan. Now let's get back to the show. One thing you mentioned a second ago is deer bedding in those bowls on ridges. And I have, I have all but just sworn those off in my life just because, man, those bowls seem to produce some of the worst swirling wind and I just get busted so often in there. How are you seeing bucks bed in and around those bowls? And how are you kind of trying to uh, take all the factors into account with swirling winds. Or are you just saying I'm, I'm back off the bowl no matter what? So I've hunted those bowls. I, I really like hunting them, but there's a, there's a couple different ways to do it. So if it's a rut situation 
it's not a bad idea to come in from over top of the ridge and hunt above their bedding. Okay. You know, then you have the thermals rising and it just depends because if they get in there too early, they've got you, you know, hill country is all about timing throughout the day. Like that's so important with timing, with steepness, with uh, leaf cover to determine what the thermals are going to do, you know, wind velocity, specific direction. Um, the thing that I really like to do early season targeting those deer come down the hill is I like to hunt on the other side of the point if possible. So you'll have a bowl, right? And you're, you're going to have two ridge points, two spines on each side of that bowl. What I like to do is get right to the, I mean, just at barely almost where you can see over that spine into the bowl and set up where his trail crosses right there. That way my thermals are pulling down the other direction. And a lot of times you'll have, you'll just, the thermals will be pulling out of the bowl to that ridge spine throughout the day. And then if you're off the backside, your thermals will start jumping down the other way and you're safe as long as you don't have a wind blowing directly into that bowl. So that's how I play off it. I play a thermal drift off the back end of that spine. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you're, you're coming up over the ridge from the, the opposite direction where you think the buck is bedded and you're stopping just short of where, your thermals are going to start to pull your scent down as it starts to get dark. Is that right? Yes, and that's one of those, yeah. And that's one of those ridge points that goes to the hub. So I can access up the Creek. I can say he's in this bowl, but I'm going to go past that bowl and I'm going to come up that other point that the spine of that point that drops all the way down and come just up barely cresting over it. So not the main Ridge, but the little spines off those sub ridges and just let those thermals pull the other way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So are, are you doing any of this in the morning then, or are you primarily sticking this for the afternoon? So I'm mainly hunting in the afternoon and I don't want to deter people from going in the morning. Cause I know a lot of successful guys early season that do it in the morning. And that's a totally different art. What I, my thought process is that when that deer is bedded down and I know where he's bedded or I have a really good idea of where he's bedded in my head, I'm in control at that point. You know, if, if I break a stick, it's my fault. If the wind is wrong, it's my fault. I'm in total control where if I'm already set up in a tree in the morning, I'm not in control. He can do whatever he wants and have a hundred different plans coming in. Um, I find a lot of very consistent early season movement from the bed to that, either that first scrape or that first food source. And I can just find when he's bedded, I can find a way to get in there without being seen, without being heard. I can navigate all the other beds and I can get set up on him and just, you know, that's, that's my game. That's the way that I like to play it. Yeah. It, man, it, it seems really tough. Like I, I've got one spot in particular where I like to hunt it in the morning because man, once the sun comes out, I'm basically bulletproof. Like there's not a deer around me. That's going to smell me. All my thermals, it, they're just shooting straight up. Like deer can walk 360 degrees around me just about, and I'm not getting busted. But in some of those sketchier areas, you head in there in the morning, you don't know how long your thermals are going to drop for. Who, who knows what, what the day is going to hold? And it could be a difference of five minutes of that buck coming in five minutes too early before, you know, things start to work in your favor. And like you said, if you're already up in a tree at that point, not really a lot that you can do. If you were going to target these in the mornings, how would your, how would your strategy, how would your access, how would that kind of stuff differ? In hill country, what I would do, I've got a couple spots that I've looked at, right? And I've said, okay, I can in here to hunt this in the afternoon because he's already better here watching me. Can I get in here in the morning and set up and shoot him laying down on his bed? And I think that that's really the only way that I would play that is to have a very specific bed 
and know, know that he's in there on a food source, know that he's going to that ridge because the right wind's going to be there the next day. And I would try to be like, if it's the point of a ridge and I know that he's coming from a food source from the east, maybe I'd set up on the western side of that with a low, very low wind in that situation and play my thermals pulling backwards just like in the afternoon and just try to shoot him right in his bed. And that's a, that's a whole different thing, right? Because there's so many variables. There's so many ways that they can bust you or J-hook in or all sorts of other things. Um, I've coupled that in one spot where there's a sheer cliff as well. So there's a sheer cliff. There's a bunch of deadfall that he beds in front of. He can, it roll, he can only access that bed from one direction. So that's kind of his disadvantage. He's putting himself at a disadvantage by coming in with the wind that is like from back to front for that last 50 feet. And I could, I could capitalize on that if he was there. That's like one of those situations that I could use if I needed to. Gotcha. Gotcha. So just piecing all of this back together now, right? Like your, your hunting style, your strategy is based on a ton of scouting and a ton of Intel. And you know, in these deer, pretty intimately, at least, you know, what they're going to be doing. You know, the woods pretty well, as far as what's, what food sources are hot right now and that kind of thing. How would your strategy look different? If you were a guy that, uh, man, you've got Saturday morning, you know what I mean? You, you don't get to hunt Monday through Friday. You've got Saturday morning or Saturday evening, let's say, or maybe the weekend to hunt. Like, how would you do things differently? I know the guy right now who doesn't have a buck, you'd say, Hey, get in there and get the Intel, right? Like if you don't have the Intel, don't hunt yet. Don't hunt until you have the intel. What are you going to tell that guy who's only got a couple of days on the weekend? You know, I would say that take those couple of days throughout the year and try to really fine tune one area that you believe in. And, you know, say, say you can get out three times that year, right? You get out one day to scout it and you're like, okay, here's some beds. Here's an oak flat. Here's an egg field you might be coming to. Here's a clear cut. Well, now you have beds and you have potential food source, right? okay, we'll now go out one time in June on a Saturday and throw a camera on it. And now leave that camera soaked just like I do until September. Pull it a week or two before season. See if he's on there or not. If he's on there, that first Saturday you get, if it's the right wind, just go for it. Just take a stab at it. To me, that's a lot better than sitting a random spot just kind of hopeless and just you know praying for a deer to walk by. Yep. I would still try to take a very fine tuned like surgical approach, but it's going to be more of a guess because you just don't have all the time put into it. But I would still try to take that same approach. And then over the years, you can still gain those patterns in those spots. Like, like we talked about earlier you could say, okay, you know, I have October 3rd to October 5th, I can be in the woods. Well, that just so happens to line up with the day last year that that buck was hitting that white Oak flat and he was bedded there. I'm just going to take a stab at him. And maybe if you have four spots like that throughout October, you can hit each one of those one day based on what food source you think is going to be hot. Just go for it. That's what I would do. Yeah. So you've, you've mentioned a couple of times that, I mean, you're, you're super aggressive, right? Like you were, you were the definition of, of aggressive when it comes to hunting these deer, but you've also talked a lot about having multiple years of, of data kind of, built up and, and to, that you can kind of base your decisions on how do, how does that pro what does that process look like for you? Is it just, man, I'm, I'm out there all the time. I've got cameras out there all the time. Like how are you putting together these uh, multiple years of data and how are you kind of sifting through it? If that makes sense. So yeah. So the data thing is in hill country and the big wood settings, it's going to be a lot of trail cameras. 
uh, there's just not as many glassing opportunities. Like if I was in farm country, I could base a lot of that data off of glassing a buck off my back porch on a bean field or something, right? Where you can like kind of get the same thing. But as far as big woods, yes, it's going to be a lot of cameras. I, I check my cameras once in September and then generally I'll let them soak as long as I think the batteries are good. So typically I'll go pull them all during shed season. It seems like, um, so they're in the woods for over half the year. And what I do is I take every single picture of a deer that's two years old or older. And I go through the weather patterns on Wonderground about that specific animal. Uh, you know, let's say October 5th, 7th and 9th, he was here on a west wind on this oak flat, but he wasn't here on an east wind. Okay. He was probably still hitting that oak flat. He was just doing, he was just bedded somewhere else because the wind was off. But those three days on a west, man, I had him dialed. Like he was, he was in trouble. So I, I filter by really wind. Wind's the number one condition I'm looking for. And then I filter it by the specific deer. So I'll give them either like buck one through five or some sort of name based on a specific characteristic. Like I have a split brow this year because he's a split brow. Um, I'll, I'll filter it by that. I'll filter and then I'll just have a ton of folders and I'll make an Excel spreadsheet based off of that as well. And, you know, like in season, if I have a couple bucks that are, that are similar in class that I want to target, I'll go back to all that data and look at it and say, okay, over the last two years in these spots, I've had this deer do making this pattern on these dates. And that's the day I'm going to go in there and target him on that win. Yeah. You, you mentioned earlier that you've got, uh, or maybe this was before we jumped on, uh, you talked a little bit about cell cameras. You said you've got a couple of them that you use and they're kind of in, what did you say? B minus spots or something like that. Cause they're typically where you have cell reception. Uh, if you had good cell reception, how would your strategy with those differ? Like, how are you going to be setting those up during the season for, for real time access? Are you still going to be on those thermal hub scrapes or how, how's that going to look? Oh, absolutely. And you know, I tell my buddies that I don't believe that a cell camera can make, can create a good hunter but I feel like a cell camera in the hands of an already good hunter is like one of the most lethal tools out there because you already have the knowledge, you have the wood, the woodmanship, you have the Intel that you need. And now to be able to place that in a very specific location, like a kill location, waiting on that deer to show up is extremely lethal. Um, I don't have a bunch of those opportunities just because of the service thing. Um, but yeah, I would run them really in a big wood setting. If I had service in those bottoms, I would run them because that's where most of my deer are getting killed is down in those bottoms. I would, I would definitely have them running on those community hub scrapes. And if I had one heat up on a specific weather pattern, like wind and weather, the next time I get that, if it's within a couple of days, I'm 100% going to go in there and target that deer because of that. I think that that's extremely lethal. Um, same thing on ag fields. Like if you have them on the right ag field and they're making a really dumb move by coming out there in daylight, that's, that's a, that's a very good thing. Uh, in a rut situation, once you see that cell cam light up with, with deer, you're, it's probably hot. You know, like you have real time Intel that that area is hot and you're not a day or two late to it. Like you can go in the next day. Uh, so, so that's really good. What I'm using them for is really like we talked about earlier, I can say, okay, this buck crossed this top of this ridge on like today, August 1st, right? Well, I know he's alive without having to go check those cameras. So I already have the patterns from last year on that deer in that area. I can just go take a shot at him if I need to. And I will do that. I, if I know a deer's there, I really don't need to go pull my camera 
to me, the Intel I have, I trust my Intel so much that I'm willing to take that chance. Yeah. And I think, man, I I think that's something huge that I don't want to gloss over, but I don't really know how much else to say about it. That whole piece of trusting the Intel that you have, I think is something that a lot of guys start to second guess themselves and maybe miss out on some Intel that's actionable right now. Like they have the pieces to make the right decision but maybe they just, they don't trust it or they don't lean into it. I know I've, I fall into that trap pretty much all the time. Uh, one thing that you haven't talked a lot about uh, yet is, is pressure and how you adjust your hunting style to pressure. And, and speaking with opening day in mind, right? Like here in the next couple of weeks, we're going to, for that deer to tell me that he's been pressured out of here. So I, I, I do both. I do have areas where I just anticipate the fact like, like a, a public bean field, right? Like that deer is daylighting on that bean field right now. I glassed him up last night on that bean field. I glassed two deer on that bean field that were of a certain size. That was fantastic. But they're, they're going to get bumped off that field. There's going to be tree stands coming up around that field. I know that there's trail cam on that field edge. I already have that deer's bed, and I have my camera staged 500 yards from that field where nobody thinks that deer lives. And I'm just waiting for him to shift back. And a lot of that has to do with those beans coming down. But even if it was a cornfield, it's set up the same way. Say it was a standing cornfield, that pressure is going to move that deer away from that field. Now, that might still be his destination food source at midnight, but I want to kill him at four in the afternoon, 50 yards from his bed. And that's, that's the big piece of the puzzle that I have. Um, but I do have other areas where I'm willing to just, the, the pressure thing is variable, right? It's variable and you can't base your tactics off of that all the time because you don't know, like with that field is a perfect example. I, maybe nobody hunts it this year. And maybe that deer is laying right next to it and I could have killed him on the field and I'm hunting a useless bed 500 yards away. Right. (laughs) So that can, that can happen. I mean, you can, that can definitely happen. That's kind of the great thing about doing this is it's it's never going to be set in stone, but sometimes I do have areas where I'll just take the chance and I'm like, I don't know if anybody's been in there or not, but I'm, I'm taking my shot. I'm going to trust what I did all year and just take the shot anyways. And if I'm wrong, well, Hey, I'm wrong. Um, but if I'm right, it's going to turn out pretty good. And you know, to, to, kind of circle back on what you were saying about the confidence thing and about believing in yourself and trusting your scouting and intel in your process. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to do at first, but once you start having more success doing this, it's like a snowball effect, right? Where you just really start believing in it. Um, you know, if I, if I look at like Dan Insult or Andy May or the DeQuistos or, you know, Johnny Stewart, Greg Litzinger, any of these guys that are just, straight killers in my book. Like the guys that I really look up to, I look at any of them, their confidence level on their hunt is extreme, right? It's very high. That's what I emulate. I I emulate that for that reason. And the thing is, is if you, if you come up with a game plan and you have your own tactics and your own basis for why you believe in what you believe in and you trust it and you go out and you fail, 
you're learning so much from that, that the next time it happens, you're going to evolve your process without even knowing you're doing it. And you're going to have, you know, subconsciously, you're going to have a totally different outlook on that hunt the next time you do that. And that's what's leading to this confidence too, is it's this constant evolution and adaptation that you don't even know about that's happening in your mind. And it almost creates like this spidey sense thing, right? Like I walk into some of these areas and I get tingles on my back and I start shaking. I'll shake in the middle of the summertime all by myself on a ridge because I know in my head, I'm like, I'm like, there's just something about this spot that's making the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And this is it. Like I'm in it. it but that is, that's learned through, through, through doing it through the trials and tribulations, right? That's not yeah. something that you'll ever be able to understand on a podcast. That's just doing it over time. It's building up that muscle memory. So that's a huge part of this whole thing. But what you can do at first is you can put that mask on. You can be confident even if you don't have the, the intel or the data you need to be confident. And you'll notice so many different things. And I try to just, I, I try to get people to do it. I'm like, just go out and kill him today. Like he's there. Go kill him. Because you're going to hunt different. Like you said earlier, you're not going to step on that stick. You're going to crawl in this spot instead of run through it. You're going to make sure you don't brush up against this. You're going to, you know, you're going to take in all sorts of different things. Like last year on my hunt that I killed my buck, the reason I killed that buck was I sat down and I was listening for acorns dropping. And there was one specific ridge that had a dozen squirrels on it. And that's why I targeted that ridge because of squirrels. But that's something that like, if I was in a hurry or I didn't believe in my process, I would have never paid attention to squirrels and acorns. Like that's off the wall, right? That's out in left field. So it's doing all of that. It's kind of putting those pieces together over time and really believing in yourself because the only way to evolve is to fully trust yourself and dive into it and learn from those failures. Yeah. Did you have, I mean, I know that's a process, right? Like it takes, it takes years of doing that and building that muscle memory, but did you have like a light bulb moment where you were like, ah, okay, I, I can trust my Intel or ah, I, I can trust my, my gut instinct that said he's definitely here. Yeah, it was maybe seven or eight years ago, I think is when that really clicked for me. Uh, I was glassing a, a bunch and I was in New York and I was glassing fields and I had a deer that was like very consistent and I already scouted this area for bedding and everything and had some travel routes figured up, but he was extremely consistent where he'd come in the low part of this field on a Southwest wind every day. And I was waiting for a Southwest wind to pop up. We got the Southwest wind. I went in, I went in about, halfway to his bed, you know, I wasn't like over, I was confident that I was going to kill him, but I wasn't like I am now where I'm like, Oh, he's dead. Like, and it worked out. And I, I ended up shooting him at 15 yards and he ran 40 yards and died. And that was like the light bulb moment for me. Um, but that, that all comes back to really, I mean, just, just putting the work in, I think that was, that was the biggest thing. You know, I, I had light bulb moments before even killing just based off of finding beds. That was a big start for me and then finding food sources by beds and then finding big tracks in those trails that lead in between. It's just been an evolution, man. It's been a, a, a lot of years of evolving. Yeah. And it's interesting you put it like that because I, when, so when I first moved to Southern Wisconsin, I, I grew up hunting Alabama, I hunted a lot in Louisiana and man, gosh, finding bedding in a Southern Alabama pine plantation was just always a nightmare. Like there, there was, I mean, I, I had no clue of how to unravel it. Then I moved to Wisconsin and I'm like, oh, everything's exactly where Dan said it was going to be. And so I started putting those pieces together. But my first season, I had all this bedding that I was hunting, but I wasn't being successful or, 
maybe I would be successful or I'd have an encounter with a deer, but they didn't come out of that bed, you know? So it's not like the, the Intel that I had, I wasn't capitalizing on what I knew. I just happened to be, you know, in the vicinity of deer, but then the evolution to say, okay, you know, so the next year, all of a sudden now I'm putting the pieces together. Like, Oh, they're going to be on this bed because these Oaks just quit dropping. So they're going to shift around to this side and they're going to be on these other white Oaks or, uh, Hey, these, these scrapes over here fired up at this time last year. So they're going to be heading, heading in that direction. So kind of slowly putting that together. So I'm like right in the middle of what you said, and I need you to do something to um, uh, speed that up for me because I need it to go ahead and happen. Uh, so you got anything like any magic pill or anything? Oh, I wish I did, man. I would have taken it a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> so one more thing that I want to, that I want to talk about, and it's because I hear a lot of guys talk about the weather uh, specifically with early season deer, right? Like you don't, yeah, deer in the rut, you hear, oh, it's going to be hot, so the deer movement will be suppressed or whatever. But when it comes to early season deer, you hear a lot of folks like, well, I'm not going today because the deer aren't going to be moving, it's too warm, especially on opening day. I talk to a lot of guys in southern Wisconsin that are like, hey, I'm not even going out. It's going to be 70 degrees today, 75 today. I'm not going to bother going out. Bucks aren't going to be on their feet. Does that play into your, into your strategy or thinking at all? Or are you just like, that deer's got to sleep and he's got to eat and I'm going to kill him? That's such a inter- it's such an interesting question because I can I can relate and understand to where people that think the heat really matters. I, I I get where they're coming from, and it really comes from what I think anyways is the distance they are from the bedding. Yep, I think that that's the biggest factor. So for me personally, it plays zero role in if I'm going to hunt that deer or not. The last three years, I've killed two Boone and Crockett deer in 85 plus degrees, and the one day was 95 degrees. Sheesh. Before- mid afternoon. So, you know, on, so it's, to me, it doesn't matter at all because like you said, they have to eat, they have to sleep, they have to drink. Now, the one thing I will do is I will play water into my equation a little bit. If it's really, really hot hot out, like if I have two ridges that set up the same way and one's closer to water, there's a good chance that I'm going to hunt the one that's closer to water just because I think at some point in the day, he's probably going to want to come down and get a drink if it's 95 or a hundred degrees out. Uh, so I played that into my deer three years ago, but yeah, I mean, I just, when you're, when you're with sub 100 yards on a bed, generally they're bedded on, you know, if you have a typical South wind, they're bedded on a North face, which is the cold face. Anyways, they're not going to shift that much. Their bedding is going to remain the same for the most part, unless they're and it, from what I've seen. Anyways, I've heard of people finding them like in the bottoms and the mark in the swamps and stuff at that time. But in my experience, they're bedded in pretty much the same spot you know, they're dealing with that heat all this, all the time. Like that's just their life. That's what they do. It's not like they completely shut off. They have to do the same thing. Now, I, like I said, I do think that that could cut movement drastically, especially daytime movement. Like maybe you have a buck hitting a field and he's traveling 500 yards because it's very unpressured and he's hitting that field in daylight. Well, if it's 95, maybe he does get there after dark, but if you're right over top of his bed, I don't think it matters. I have had, I have killed more deer in the first day or two of season over 75 degrees than I've killed any other time of year. I mean, I've, you know, I've only killed a handful of deer in the rut at all when it's snowy and beautiful out. It's always like the early season buggy mosquito E where you're soaked from head to toe in sweat. And you know, it just, it doesn't matter that much to me. Yeah. I, I think that's, you know, you ask anybody and they'll say, sure, I'd love to kill 
an opening day buck or I'd love to kill a buck, you know, the first week of season. But not very many people that I talk to are like excited about the things that come along with hunting opening day, like spider webs in your face all the way in or, you know, where I'm at right now, snakes uh, all over the place on these hillsides as you're trying to find your way in. So there's a different thing to want to do it. Uh, it's a it's different to want to do it than to uh, actually get out there and, and put up with everything that comes with it. Uh, and I don't, I don't know about you, man, but I've got this weird thing. Like if I get outside and I'm out, you know, hunting or whatever, and I start to get really sweaty, that old, uh, the old ways of thinking about scent control and stuff comes swirling back into my mind. And I'm like, every deer within half a mile knows you're here just magically, just because you sweated. Like they just know. Like, so like, I, I don't know. It's hard. It's hardwired in there. I gotta, I gotta beat that out at some, at some point, but all right, to wrap things up here. You've got a guy listening to this right now, and he says, Jake, I want to kill a deer on opening day. have no clue what I'm doing. Where do I start? What do I do? What advice would you give him? I would say that there's a couple things that I hope that they've done already, right? Like, I hope they have some scouting, and I hope they're, they either have cameras out or they're getting cameras out. I hope they've located some beds. I hope they have some food sources that are going to be pretty good come season. I hope they're doing a little bit of glassing. But if that hasn't happened, I would say that now is better than never, right? Go out and do what you can in the time that you have. Run your cameras, find your deer, enjoy it. You know, take a snake stick with you so you can whack snakes away <laughs> and spiders and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, just go out and, and fall in love with the process and enjoy it. And you'll be surprised what happens. I mean, that's, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm, you know how it is. I'm, I'm caught up in it and I just can't imagine just not giving everything I had all year for it. So to me, it's sure. never ending, but for a guy that's, you know, just starting up now. Yeah. I would say just, just commit to it, go out and do it and, and just commit to it. And I bet you'll have some pretty good success. Yeah. La- last question for you. Cause it just hit me. If you were that guy and you got to opening day and you still don't have the Intel. So we're not leading into opening day. You don't have the Intel on opening day. Are you going to skip hunting? so that you can go get the intel? Yeah, I am. I'm definitely going to skip hunting to get intel. Um, and it's changed a little bit over the years with filming now, because with filming, I want to film my, I want to capture that. Right. So I'll scout without my bow in my hand during season. I'll leave it right at home, but maybe go scout with your bow and then just ground and pound, like find a ground hunting location, you know, scout your way into a hot food source and big tracks and have a general idea idea of like where the bedding is and just take a shot at it. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do that. You know, if you do have that annual Intel, even if it's not, you know, necessarily going to be up to date, maybe take a shot at it. But I would definitely, for me, if I'm not 100% confident in where that deer is going to be, at least in my own head, I'm just, I'm going to scout. I would rather scout. I've done it a lot. I scouted two years ago for like, three days in the middle of the rut without a bow in my hand, which is probably the most ridiculous thing possible, but I killed my deer right after that. So it works out. But yeah, I would, I would scout hard as much as you can and hunt. You know, I, that's kind of the common theme, right? That you hear is scout, 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 hunt. And that's, it's so true. I mean, it's to me, it's like hundred to one almost. I might scout 200 days for one day or days every year, but get it, get that ratio as high as you can that's, that's going to lead to a lot more consistency. Yeah. All right, Jake. So heading into opening day, how do things look for you? You're, or is it a, is it a promising opening day? Do you think coming up or are you just kind of still waiting it out? 
So it's always kind of funny going through going through summer because uh, I'll see all these different guys getting like these giants on camera, right? And for me, that's just really not the case at all. Um, you know, most of my cameras I'll pull in September. So what I'm doing now is I'm preparing. I'm preparing my bow. I'm preparing with glassing and trying to locate other deer. I'm just getting everything ready, getting my gear ready, and just getting, you know, ready to dial in opener. Um, but yeah, I'll get more excited when September comes around. I find some better bucks for sure. Yeah. Are you going anywhere else outside of Ohio this year? Uh, yeah. So I'll be in at least New York. I didn't get the Kansas tag this year. I'd like to get to West Virginia and possibly Indiana as well. It's just going to be a matter of how much time I have to dedicate to it. And then how fast I can fill this Ohio tag. If I fill the Ohio tag day one, then I'll be moving around for sure. Yeah, man. I've talked to a lot of guys that did not draw Kansas this year. It was, uh, it was weird. You know, there's people that have drawn that tag for 10 plus years in a row. And now all of a sudden they didn't. And it's kind of odd because every person that I know that killed in Kansas last year did not draw this year. So I don't know if that plays into the fat into it or not, but, um, but yeah, it's going to become a little bit more difficult. I think we're looking at, you know, probably a point now and that might continue to elevate up just like Iowa's doing. Yeah, man, I've, <laughs> I've got three points in Iowa right now. And the more I watch it, the more I'm like, ah, dude, I just want to go ahead and cash this in on another, on another section of the state because holy cow, I don't know if I can keep up with trying to get into, get into Southern Iowa. Yeah, it's getting more and more difficult. And I, I just really want to do that at least once, you know, that's, I got the same thing. I've got two points right now, but I'm looking at what a minimum of 2026 or 2027, probably at the rate we're going before I can hunt a couple of those really good units. So it's same thing. Do I want to hunt the Northern zones twice in that time frame, or do I want to hold out and hunt and really go all out? It's a, uh, it's a tough decision. I, I hope it, I hope it gets a little better. I don't know if it will though, because this is becoming popular, which is great. That's an awesome thing that this is happening. As much as some people don't like to say it is recruitment needs to happen and more people need to do this. That's the only way we're going to have it for, you know, future generations. So I really, I really like seeing that. I, I like that more people are finding the escape and the solitude and the passion like we all have, right? Like that's, that's very important. And that's such a cool thing that other people are starting to experience. So, I'm happy for that. But at the same time, it's like, Oh, I want to hunt some of those spots a little bit. So <laughs> you want your chance too. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Very good. Well, Jake, I've taken enough of your time, man. Where can folks find more from you? Yep. So you can find me on YouTube at legends of the hunt. I've got a lot of the hunts that we talked about today on there uh, from Southern Ohio. And then there's a Kansas hunt on there as well. And you can find me on Instagram at the Jake Bush and on Facebook's just Jake Bush. Good deal. Good deal. Well, man, thanks for your time. Appreciate you coming on. And, uh, hey, hope you get one on opening day. And if you do, let me know, and I'll have you back on to tell the story. Hey, same to you, man. Thanks for having me. And that is all for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Big thanks to Jake for coming on. Looking forward to having that guy on again because he is just a wealth of knowledge. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, Deer Lab. Go check those guys out. Please support the partners that support this show so that I can keep bringing you high-quality content each and every day week if you're looking for more outdoor themed content you can head over to the sportsmansempire.com where you'll find this podcast my other podcast the wisconsin sportsman and a whole host of other outdoor themed podcasts 
We've got shows for Missouri. We've got shows for Oklahoma, shows for Pennsylvania, a bunch of great shows with regionally specific content. And then, of course, all the old standby, Southern Ground Hunting, Nine Finger Chronicles, all that good stuff. So head over to that website, sportsmansempire.com. We'll see you back here next week. Mm-hmm.